Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I think above all else, we have got to get a mindset or maybe reset our parenting. That it's a different world and we've got to get a different set of tools to help our kids be able to handle this very uncertain world. It doesn't mean you're going to stop helping them try to be successful in a classroom. I'm not going there. I'm just saying, let's make it a balance so it's not either or, it's both. These seven traits are going to help your kid be a peak performer, but they're also going to help your child be mentally healthier, to be able to be more resilient, to be able to bounce back and find joy in their life and in the world. That was Michelle Borba on Psychologist Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, and co-author of Act Daily Journal. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, co-author with Debbie on Act Daily Journal and practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. Everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com slash POTC to get 5% off your entire order. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you listen to this podcast, you probably know by now that we are partnered with Praxis Continuing Education. And there's a reason why. It's because Praxis really can help you transform your clients' lives by learning how to effectively promote lasting change with evidence-based approaches. ACT, DBT, Compassion-Focused Therapy. And we love Praxis so much 
especially because our very own Debbie Sorensen is going to be doing a workshop through Praxis. Tell us about it, Debbie. Yes, I'm doing a webinar on acceptance commitment therapy for burnout. This is for therapists who are working with clients who are burnt out. And of course, as therapists, we are also (laughs) occasionally may experience our own burnout. So hopefully it will be helpful for that too. It starts August 25th and it's on Wednesday afternoons, just for a few Wednesdays in a row. Uh, So you can check it out on the Praxis website and learn more. I hope you can join me if you're a therapist. It'd be great to have you there. And for all of the live online courses that Praxis offers, you can go to our website, offtheclockpsych.com, and get a discount code. This is Yael. I'm here to introduce a new episode with Jill on how kids can thrive. So I got to interview Michelle Borba, who's just recently released a book that by the title of Thrivers, The Surprising Reasons Why Some Kids Struggle and Others Shine. We've we've had a bunch of interviews recently on thriving, on grit, on how, how to support kids in growing up. And this is a lot of the messages really converge, but Michelle had so much new content to offer. And Jill, I think you felt the same. I did. I What I felt was some of the things you guys talked about were like amazing reminders. You know, it helps me to have some repetition. To it, It's easy to, to do what you normally do. And having that repetition is like such a great reminder for, oh, right, I need to go back and do this. And then I felt like there was all this, there was like a new spin on so much of it. And I just got a ton out of this episode. And I was wishing I was at my desk so I could have been taking notes. And I'm I'm definitely going to have to listen to this one again. I know that you had an experience of actually listening to the episode that you wanted to share. But before you do, I wanted to share that while I was reading and prepping for the interview, Um, my oldest and my youngest were otherwise occupied and I was sitting next to my middle child who's eight. Um, He was reading and then he came over and asked me what I was reading and I was starting to explain to him the content of the book and sort of the point and how kids thrive. And we got to talking about these different traits that kids can build over time to help them to thrive. And we actually went through the seven traits together and I asked him, it it sparked this really interesting conversation because I got to ask him, you know, what areas do you think you're doing really well in? Where do you feel really strong? And where do you think you want to be growing yourself more? And it turned out that for him, optimism is a tricky one. He sometimes, he's a perfectionist. And so when things don't go well, he gets really hard on himself and says, oh, it's, I'm just bad at it and I'm never going to be good. And because of this conversation that we had that was sparked by my prepping for the interview, it's now become a part of our conversation, our ongoing conversation, that when things go well, he'll, he'll kind of own, like, I was really optimistic, I didn't give up, I believed in myself, and when things go badly, he'll be able to have that observing self engaged and say, I think that one I was kind of pessimistic, not always in the moment, but it's it's actually been really helpful, and it, it was just this fortuitous event that I was reading it while he was next to me, and, and we had this conversation, so I'm hoping that this episode helps other people spark conversations with their kids. And Jill, I think it sparked some conversations between you and your kids. It it did. Actually, my kids and I were in the car while I was listening to the episode. And Michelle asked, Michelle tells a story about interviewing, I think it was 100 kids and asking, um, if you failed, do you think your parents would be disappointed? Something like that. And the majority of them said yes. Or maybe it was what would happen if you failed? And the majority said my parents would be disappointed. 
And I paused the episode and I asked my kids, do you think mommy and daddy, they're seven and nine, do you think mommy and daddy would be disappointed if you failed? And my seven-year-old said, no. Mm -hmm. But my nine-year-old said, yes. And I just thought it was so interesting because you think you're parenting your kids exactly the same, but you know, she was my firstborn. There's so much anxiety. You want to feel like you're doing it right, like doing a good job, but probably inadvertently putting pressure on that you don't even realize you're putting on. My son said, you know, well, I know that it's okay if we make mistakes. And I said, yes, it's absolutely okay if you make mistakes. And in fact, it can even be a good thing if you make mistakes. And do you know why that is? And he said, because that's how you learn. And we continued the conversation. I said, do you know what the most successful people in the world, there's one thing that they have in common that makes them different from other people. And they named a few, you know, successful people. My daughter said, Jeff Bezos. And I said, do you know what they all have in common? And she goes, they're all jerks. And I said, well, no. I mean, maybe. I don't know. I don't know them. And I said, no, they've actually failed more than other people. So why do you think that more failure creates more success? And my son again said, because yeah. that's how you learn. <laughs> and and what really struck me about the whole thing is like, why aren't we talking about this more? Like, this is such a rich opportunity for us to just have these conversations instead of assuming we know what our kids are interested in or why they're interested or what they think about failure. Yeah. Like, let's yeah. talk about it. Well, I hope that this episode really sparks a lot of conversations. And I hope that people who listen to this episode reach out to us and share with, with us and, and with other listeners the kinds of conversations that have been triggered by by the content that we're sharing, either in this episode or in other episode. Because I think the more conversations that we get going, the more opportunities there are for learning. So please reach out to us, and, and I hope you get a lot out of this episode. Michelle Borba is an educational psychologist, former teacher, and mom recognized for her research-driven parenting advice. She and her work appear on CNN, U.S. News & World Report, the Chicago Tribune, Time, the New York Times, among others, and she's authored 25 books. Her latest is Thrivers, The Surprising Reasons Why Some Kids Struggle and Others Shine. Thrivers is a wonderful science-backed guide full of how-to on-the-ground strategies for parents and educators to teach kids the kind of strengths that kids need in order to flourish. So I'm really excited to have you here, Michelle. Oh, thank you. I'm so delighted to be able to talk to you and connect. Thank you. So I wonder if we can begin at the beginning with the question of how you define a thriver. So what makes a child a thriver? And I know we're going to talk a lot about the character strengths that set thrivers apart. So I also would love to hear you talk about how you decided on on which to include. Oh, thank you. A, th- a thriver to me is a real easy definition. It's just a kid who says, I got this. He doesn't depend on somebody else to do it. I think the commonality, if I were to look at all kids, because they have all different kinds of temperaments as a thriver, they come from all different kinds of backgrounds, but they all seem to have a sense of agency that they've learned that I can do this and I don't have to rely on somebody else. So as a result, they can push on through. A striver is a little bit different. Oh my gosh, they may have the fortitude that wants to do the same thing, but they don't go the whole nine yards. Very often they stop, they have to give up because they, I think they don't have the skill sets that helps them keep on going. So a thriver is made, not born. That's the key that we've got to keep in mind. And wow, can we make a difference in terms of parents? 
Yeah. And I think that that's such an important thing that you emphasize that thrivers are made, not born, that it's not just inborn traits. And we're talking about character strengths, but it's not like you have them when you're born. They're, they're muscles that get built. And so you talk a lot about this kind of more growth mindset about the characteristics of thriving. But before we dive into sort of how we grow them, can you sort of tell us what are those character strengths and, and how did you land on them? Because I know that this comes from a lot of research that you come through. Well, thank you for that, because it's been 30 years of a journey to write this book. <laughs> I started way back in when as a special education teacher, and I was dealing with a lot of kids who had obviously struggles in learning and emotions and behaviors. But despite it, I found that some were struggling more while others were shining more despite of the diagnosis. So it was looking at what really helps kids. And I, at that point, I was... Um, going through all of the research and I came upon this amazing Emmy Werner's research. Oh my gosh. I just absolutely went, this is it. She was yeah. uh, doing a longitudinal study from children in the Island of Kauai. And she's been still looking at them actually for over 40 years. She found a cohort of kids that were all had adversities. And then she got a whole team of social workers, psychologists, nurses, pediatricians to follow the same kids. And she's shocked. Because midway through the study, actually about 10 years into the study, she says, my gosh, some of them are really making it despite the adversity. And then she goes into the why factor. At the same point, Ann Mastin is doing studies with kids in war zones. Michael Rudder is doing kids in poverty. Norm Garmizi is studying kids with schizophrenic parents, and they're finding the same thing. Kids bounce back, some do, and now it's why. So the next thing is, after I'm looking at all of these, is get a huge desk that's big with a bunch of Post-its <laughs> because I was trying to find out the commonalities. What are teachable, teachable commonalities between that, that study, this study, this study? And in the end, I came up with seven. I kept pulling and pulling and pulling them. The seven had to be, number one, highly correlated to resilience. Number two, they had to be teachable. Three, I was really concerned about kids' mental health. It was plummeting, and that was prior to the pandemic. So they had to be able to help kids in terms of well-being. But I also know parents are really concerned about, but he has to do good in that classroom. Same traits also help peak performance. And there was a little, whoa, a hidden advantage they also kept coming up in the Global Economic Summit as highly correlated to what we're looking for in the 21st century. And those were the seven. So that's how I came up with them. Uh, in terms of what they were, uh, number one was confidence. Kids who are thriving really have a sense of knowledge about their strengths. They don't focus so much on their weaknesses. They know who they are. Second was empathy. They are. We do know that social competence is highly correlated with mental health and resilient kids who are able to figure out a cohort system that I, I got to keep springing back and they need that support system. The third one was self-control. They have uh, an ability to put the brakes on impulses so they can think straight and self-regulate. Fourth was integrity. I love this one came up. But they have a strong sense of beliefs that have been planted in them, usually by the parent. But because they know what they stand for and have a strong moral code, when the adversity comes, they don't have to waver and waver. They go, I got this. They can keep on going through. Then comes curiosity. Love that one. But they're out-of-the-box thinkers. They, uh, When the adversity comes and every kid's going to face with it, these kids don't throw up the white flag. They go, okay, I'll find a way around it or through it. 
They're little problem solvers. They're resourceful. And then the final two are perseverance. They hang in there because they realize they got the growth mindset. If you keep working on it and put your effort into the into just keep on trying and trying and trying, you'll finally get closer and closer and closer. The last one is optimism and hope. They they have the ability to find the silver lining to uh, at adversity so they can keep on going. That's kind of like your plan for parenting for a lifelong journey, uh, but also for teaching because we can weave those into our classrooms as well. Yeah. So I have a couple of thoughts. So one that I just want to mention is that these are characteristics that we're trying to grow in our kids. But one of the things that you comment on is that it's really important for us to embody these, that we can teach better if we're doing it, but also that, um, I think that your work really speaks to parents themselves to be able to grow these. So even though we're going to be talking about building these in our kids, what I want any listeners who are not parents to just think about is, is that this really applies to the kind of learning that we can do for ourselves. I think that that's a really important message. The other um, thing that I wanted to get you to talk a little bit about is that in order to thrive, do our kids or or do we need to have all seven of these characteristics or uh, can we thrive even if we have some areas of weakness? I love the last one because every parent, that's their first question. How am I going to get time to do all seven of these? So relax. It's a rare adult that has all seven of these. Here's the thing that was my real aha moment. Every one of us is always wondering which one matters most. And I think there's this, there's this real, well, misnomer about resilience that it's one trait. So the first thing, it's not one trait. It's a combination of traits. You figure out which ones are your kids. I have three kids. They're as different as night and day. Each kid's going to have a different skill set and a different trait set. But the key is they've got to have some of these. And if you pair any two of them together, that's the my real aha moment. They create what I call a multiplier effect. They amplify the power so they become superpowers. You put empathy plus self-control, oh my gosh, you've got a life changer. You put optimism plus perseverance, the kid's not going to stop. So it's not one thing that we, oh, let's put all our efforts into growth mindset. No, let's just slowly, it'll be a while, parent, don't overwhelm yourself, add these to the plate, give kids experience about them, and you'll really expand expand your child's horizons and help them be more likely to thrive. Yeah. So I actually want to back up a little bit. So one of the things that you talk a lot about thrivers being able to do is, is bounce back, have resilience. So resilience is a word that gets thrown around a lot in our modern yeah. sort of psychology, self-help literature. And I wonder if you can define what resilience is and explain why it's so important in thriving. In other words, what do you wish that parents knew about resilience? Well, number one, I wish you knew about resilience in that it's extraordinarily highly correlated to health, happiness, well-being, everything and everything you want for your child. That's the first thing. Second of all, you have the power to be able to instill that in your child. Why does it matter? Because I think the most important reason I wrote Thrivers is I was so concerned about this growing stat that said kids are not faring well. We love them dearly. We give them every opportunity known to man. By the way, we're doing something really good. They're the smartest generation on record. Their 4.0 GPAs are now 7.3s. They're brilliant. But... What we're seeing is that they're not faring so well. They're not bouncing back. And we know that because I started working with colleges and they're seeing something dismal. This was prior to the pandemic. 
Okay, let's look at that. Because a pandemic, watch out, only amplifies a crisis. So what was happening right before the pandemic hit? One in five American kids was going to suffer from a mental health disorder. That was the first stat. Second of all, the number one time our kids were most likely to drop out in their entire life and a freshman year, first semester in college. You work your whole life trying to get that kid there. You go, oh, he's there. He's going to be healthy and happy. And then they drop out. Yale, Harvard, Stanford, the best and the best said there's a different breed coming in. They're very smart, but they can't cope. We're running out of resources, mental health facilities for them. And then I began to see a trend that was killing me. And that was um, UCLA studies said that each year they've been tracking our kids for the last 30 years. They're lonelier and lonelier and lonelier as they come in. And two years ago, they were seeing this trend that they didn't want roommates. They were putting yellow tags on their doors. Please, I don't want a roommate. The number one reason is not because they wanted more time to study. They didn't know how to get along with others. So those are like horrific kinds of things because a resilient child is going to be able to handle the punches and bumps of life. They're the ones who handle it. And every kid is going to have a challenge. Let's be very clear. This is an extremely uncertain world. If it's not a pandemic, who knows what else is coming down the pike. So trying to rescue them and bubble wrap them does them no favor. It robs them of the ability to handle life. But what you want is a child to be able to say, I got this. I know it's tough. But no matter what hits me, I'm going to be able to endure it and get back. And that's really, to me, what resilience is, is kind of a bounce back. I'm not 100% into the definition that says you go back exactly where you were before, because I think every experience alters you, and it's impossible to go back to exactly where you were before if you've had any kind of a challenge. But you just can keep on going, is what I'm saying in terms of resilience. Yeah, and in some in some sense, you wouldn't necessarily want, like if we're talking growth mindset, we want kids to learn from the challenges. So, you know, that we want there to be forward movement after challenges, ideally. And certainly, you know, as you're saying, life experiences change you. But what I, I want to say that what I, one of the things that I really treasured about your book is all of the hands-on tips for like, what do we do as parents, as educators, uh, you know, even for ourselves in order to build resilience, in order to build more thriving. So here's a question from a friend about resilience that I wanted to share. I think it's a common struggle. What if a kid stops themselves before they ever need to be resilient? So this is from my friend. My kid can be reticent to participate socially or academically or in games because she's afraid of failure, loss, or embarrassment. And so her solution is to sit out entirely, and we can't figure out how to bring her into a space where she feels safe and brave enough to even make the attempt that would lead to building up more resilience. So what should that parent do? What are some tips that you have? I absolutely love that question because I think it's back to when we talked about the college, what they're seeing is more risk adverse kids. They're afraid to raise their hand. They, they're afraid to get the wrong answer. They're afraid if I don't get 150,000 percentage points, I'm going to be a failure. So I think the first thing is, this is not an easy, here's exactly what to do, mom, but here's what you do. First of all, 
anytime you want to change, you got to be aware that there is what the problem is and you've already identified it. So give yourself full credit that you see your child worrying. Yeah. Number two is watch what comes out of your mouth. Be very, very careful. I was interviewing a hundred kids, uh, which was the most mind boggling thing I've ever done in my life as I was uh, do, writing thrivers to figure out their perception. And the, one of the things that was a commonality of teens is that they said they were afraid to, of failing because they didn't want to disappoint their parents. So I know we may not think that that's what we're doing, but be very, very careful. Number three is let failing be an op be an permissible in your home. Failure is an option. Mistakes are how we learn. Also start acknowledging your own because this is not going to be a change you're going to do tomorrow. You're going to be a slow, gradual change because usually it takes about seven, eight years for the kid to get that way. Now you're going to have to find out how long is it going to be gradually to turn it around. A fourth is find one thing. What's that one little thing that she's a little bit more confident about? It may be uh, Thrivers at the beginning has a core asset survey. So you can take a moment to identify who your kid is. What are her strengths? What does she gravitate towards? Find the one thing that she finds a little bit easier that makes learning a, a lot easier. In fact, to, to be able to, to share that with a child, your strength, pick up your pencil and write, sweetie pie. Oh, good. See how easy that was? Now pick up your pencil and write with the other hand. That's not your strength area. See, that was a struggle. Let's look at the things that are easy for you to do. And because everybody's got some hard ones and everybody's got some easy ones. Now start looking at one easier thing and put your focus onto that so you can keep giving her that growth mindset of going, hey, you, you're hanging in there. Look how successful you are. Don't ever praise her for the heck of it. But when she actually earns and deserves it, stretch her like a rubber band. Your goal and your expectations with this child is to stretch her like you're pulling a rubber band gently, 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 but don't you dare snap it by pulling too hard because now you snap her spirit. So it's one step over what she was previously. Finally, don't ever emphasize the end product. You got 100% or you got the A+. plus. Instead, emphasize yesterday you were here, today you were here. Yesterday you were here. Oh, today you're over here. And when she gets really overwhelmed because failure paralyzed kids do, they think of the hardest thing. That's all they think about, even though they can do the rest of it. You look, focus on, first of all, the hardest thing, because usually it's a little stumbler and you do the, the MO of a really good coach, a really good coach. Let's look at a soccer coach never says you might as well give up because you didn't make that goal. Instead, they say, let's watch that video again. Let's replay it. Oh, it's your foot. If we just move your foot this way and practice that one little stumbler and keep kicking, you'll succeed. Break it down for the child. That's a hardcore life lesson. But all of those are your lesson plans as a parent to be able to now dig in, ideally have your other parenting partner, the teacher, grandma, grandpa, somebody else reinforcing it together. And you can make a difference on slowly helping this child realize failure is okay. It's how I learn. Yeah. I mean, and so part of it is, you know, breaking it down for yourself. And part of it is as a parent, not getting so panicked and overwhelmed yes. by failure yourself. And I think that that's an important message for us as parents to really um, integrate into our own philosophy, both for ourselves and for our kids. And I love, I love the suggestion to 
fail and share it with your with your kids, right? Own it as yeah. your own learning experience in a very non-pejorative way and in like a, a celebratory way. This is how we learn. You know, there's a really simple tip. When you mentioned the tips, I tried to put at least 300 in there of thrivers and each one of them is age by age. But when it comes to failing, one of the simplest ways to do that is to, again, acknowledge your failure, like, you know, next time I'll, but that's what you do. It's the next time I'll. I blew it because I I didn't read the instructions on the computer in order to boot it up and I just blew it out. But next time I'll pick it up and here's what I'll do. If you keep sharing your next times, it helps the child realize a mistake has a learning opportunity of what I can do instead. If the child is young, read Fortunately by Remy Sharlop. It is a goldmine. It's Ned, age five. Oh my gosh, fortunately, he gets invited to a birthday party. Oh, that's so exciting. But unfortunately, the party's in Florida and he's in New York. But fortunately, every page turns a unfortunate into a fortunate to a fortunate into a fortunate until he's finally at, at the birthday party. And that's his fortunate. I love that message because I've seen many teachers use that book. And I've seen kids turn to their partner who has taken an eraser and like desecrating the, the mistake and actually saying, so what's your fortunate going to be? <laughs> How yeah. precious is that? But, you know, sometimes it's a book or a language mantra that you can use. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Okay, so my next question is, so we can teach thriving, except there's going to be so many people listening to this and reading your book whose brains are automatically going to jump to this conclusion of, except for me or except for my kid, because my kid is lacking in self-control or persistence because he is wired to have attentional deficits or she is wired for anxiety or depression. So how do you explain the possibility that all kids can develop these characteristics, even those that have wiring or, or hormonal balances or early life experiences that, that set them up to be weaker in some areas? Because the goal that you're trying to do is take your child from where he or she is and gently stretch them so they can become their best personal self and don't ever underestimate a child. That's what I learned from special education. I mean, the, the, the value that I get that is amazing is teaching that so many years ago. And then I'm on the Today Show all the time. So what happens is when I'm on the Today Show, one of those kids from 30 years ago calls up and says, hey, Mrs. Borba, how you doing? And then they give me a backlog on the kids in the class and how they're doing. I say, and so I go one by one. How is each child doing? And I'm blown away. Donnie, who was my nonstop talker, he had attention deficits that was so short. I thought, oh my gosh, he's never going to be able to, because he's nonstop talker. What is he doing right now? He's a DJ, extremely successful in San Francisco. And I'm going, his mother found that kid's strength and never stopped. Scotty, who was the shyest kid you could possibly imagine. I thought, oh my gosh, how are you going to build Scotty's confidence level? I was blown away. He's a DA in Florida. And he's like doing mind-boggling stuff. Sometimes we get so into our fix-it mentality that we forget to take the kid from where they are. We've got to stop comparing them to the kid next door because that isn't it about. It's about figuring out your child's strength and gently keep stretching them. I love the story in self-control on Michael Phelps. Michael Phelps, the most highly decorated Olympic athlete we have in the world who had ADHD, who Ritalin didn't work for him, but he figured out what was going to work for him at a young age, swimming pool. That's what he said 
the one place that I figured out to take my energy. And then my mom would sit in the stands. And when I needed to calm down, we'd figure out a calm down strategy when I was in the pool. She'd make her hand into the shape of a C. That was our signals that says, Michael, you need to calm down. And then I'd learn the stuff that she taught me and I kept on swimming. Wonderful stories like that. And I purposely put each story in Thrivers for each chapter of a child who was struggling but a parent found a way for him or her to shine. Yeah. And you talk about, you know, the importance of having a parent that can really be that child's advocate for who that child is, right? Loving the child yes. for who they are, meeting them where they're at. And it reminds me a lot of um, Alison Gopnik's book, The Gardener and the Carpenter. And it is more useful to think of our children as bulbs and we don't get to pick what kind of bulb, but what our job is, is to figure out what does this particular bulb need in order to thrive? What are the conditions oh, that are going to be that. most helpful for them? Exactly. And, you know, the, the bottom line is temperament is going to be different as night and day. Sometimes they're more like dandelions and other kids are wild African orchids. So it's like you've right. got to figure out who your child is, that temperament, and then make sure that you're helping that kid gently stretch them. Identifying that child's strengths and who they are seems to be the bottom line. I I love the story. In um, <laughs> I was in Dubai, and a dad came up to me when I was talking to a group of teachers, and he said, "I got to tell you, I got a middle school kid, and my son, all he did was talk about wolves. Can you imagine a middle school kid? All he loved in his passion was wolves. I wanted him to get into law, but I couldn't stand the fact that he just kept talking about wolves. So I decided to have him meet a park ranger. We took him on a little field trip and I sat there with my mouth open because my kid was correctly, politely correcting the park ranger about stats about wolves. That was my moment that said, stop law, get him into biology because that's who my kid is. And he's a heck of a lot happier kid as a result of it. And man, is he thriving. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. We've had a number of guests who want to offer you, our listeners, discounted access to some of their fantastic programs. So if you want to learn powerful practices for happiness, calm, and well-being, we have several offerings from Rick Hansen. If you want app-based behavior change, you can check out Judd Brewer's apps for anxiety, eating well, and smoking cessation. Or you can learn how to be a calmer parent with Mindful Mama mentor Hunter Clark Fields. So go to our website, offtheclockpsych.com, and visit our offers page, where you will find access to free courses and discount promo codes. One of the things that you really advocate, and I found as a parent this is so useful, is to follow your kids' passions and to allow them to develop hobbies, even if those hobbies are not of interest to you. But what do you say to parents whose kids' hobbies are all screen-based? Like my kid, you know, has a passion for Minecraft or Fortnite. What about those yeah. hobbies? Do we follow them down that path or do we, do we, you know, set up some boundaries? Well, you always set up boundaries. So here's, let's go first what you do on the boundary level and then go to the hobby. Number one is there's dozens of hobbies and kids are going to attract themselves to some that are going to go against our grain. But when they go against your 
rules in your house and health issues, then you pull the plug or your your rule base. First of all, watch your kid when he's doing the hobby. A hobby should be healthy in that it increases your child's mental well-being. You'll see a change in him. He starts the hobby, and then as he continues it, if it's a healthy hobby, you're going to see that he's decompressing more, he's more engaged, he's more excited, he's more eager, and as a result, he's, he's not the behavior problem. He's actually more eager. He's a kid who's going to say, mom, I can't go have chocolate cake right now because I really have to finish this project. And you'll see love in his or her face. That's what's going to give meaning. So the first thing is watch the change in your child. If it's positive, keep going with it. Second of all, sit down with your kid and ask him, why do you like it? What's so intriguing about it? And play it or do it with your child. Because sometimes some of those Minecraft, what you're actually seeing your child do is expand creativity. You're seeing them in some of those kind of virtual games going into empathy-based stuff that you didn't realize was there. Figure out why he loves it. But watch out because if he continues to do digital idea because he's just preoccupied with it and it doesn't help or enhance his well-being, then it's time to, to put some standards of what he's supposed to be doing instead. What is he plugging out of should be your key question. Hobbies, we now know, are highly correlated to resilience because uh, they give your kid an item to decompress with. When I interviewed a group of kids, uh, middle school kids, I said, what are your hobbies? They looked at me absolutely dumbfounded. What's a hobby and who has time for them? Back to Emmy Werner, remember her? That study, what she said was one of the ordinary things that kids do who are resilient is they go to hobbies. Resilient work is now discovering ordinary things can make extraordinary differences on a kid's lives. Music, books, prayer, hobbies, things that we may overlook. For some kids, it's a healthy alternative. Yeah. And I just want to sort of make note because one of the recommendations that is peppered throughout your book is cut something out of your activity list for the week, like do one less thing. And I love that recommendation in order to build our kids resilience, in order to help them thrive more. Yeah. We need to give them time to, to just be, to not be doing and not be, you know, enriching, but, and to, in that time of just being, they get to pick what they are interested in and use that to decompress create space for themselves. So I wonder if you can just talk a little bit about both the challenges of doing it as a parent, but also why it's so important. One of the things that we've discovered about uh, our children in this raised in the last 10 years is that they're very, very scheduled. And so one of the things that we worry about is that they don't have time to enjoy their own company, who they are, what do they like to do, or just decompress. The reason for the hobby or just being by yourself or just being is to be able to breathe, to be able to just take it down and be present with yourself because you're going to be with yourself for a very, very long time. You might as well enjoy who you are. The second thing is next time is, but we don't have time for that. So a strong suggestion is look at your kid's calendar. Take a real, real hard look at that calendar and maybe sometimes even sit with the kid. Now, there's certain things on there that you're going to keep. And by the way, I'm not suggesting stop helping your kid learn math if he's struggling. That's not where I'm at. But does he have any time to just enjoy himself, learn to decompress? And are there things worked in there that build and nurture his strengths? For instance, maybe you can get rid of the cello because he hates it. 
and your your whole goal of the cello is to get him into college, but he would prefer um, just robotics because that's the kind of a kid he is. It's a flip of finding the things that, at least one thing, that drive your child's inner passion. There's another reason for it. Bill Damon, I think, is one of the best psychologists we've got in the world right now, adolescent psychologist. He's at Stanford, and he's been watching incoming college freshmen, and he said, it's really dismal. They're coming in, and only 20% of them have a sense of purpose. They've been driven from, here's what you should be. Here's who you should become. But once they get there, they don't have a sense of meaning or purpose over their own life. Well, that hobby, by the way, is going to be with you till your end of your days. But very often, the hobby gives you a sense of here's who I am and what I love to do. And it's driven from the inside out of the child. So first, if you're a family and goes, oh my gosh, we don't have hobbies. It's okay. It's not too late. Here's your thing you can do this week. Maybe introduce them. Maybe just each week have a family hobby or a family monthly hobby of, and this is when you can get, you know, Uncle Fred, he can do woodwork because you can't. Or Great Aunt Sally, I'll do a Zoom lesson on knitting. Or Grandma, I can do baking. You can watch your kid and see what they gravitate toward. And by the way, you'll also get relatives involved. And here's something else. Resilient kids have a cadre of anchors. People who really love them and you will never give up on them. Now you're bringing those people to the forefront and saying, she's always with you. She's going to be there till as long as you need. you got one more person who's your cheerleader. So one of the things that you talk about hobbies building in kids is this character strength of self-confidence. And one of the Mm. things that I want to get you to talk about is the difference between self-confidence and self-esteem. Why is that difference so important? And what do we need to know about that difference? Self-confidence to me is quiet, it's internal, and it's a knowledge of who I am and what my strengths are. I worry about self-esteem because we all got on the bandwagon too much and we started to assume that what our kids needed to feel good about themselves and to thrive. And in all fairness, we did it because we love our kids desperately is to praise the heck out of them or give them a trophy for breathing. And as a result, (laughs) what happened along the way is it backfired. All of the research kept coming in saying it doesn't have anything to do with mental health, but confidence does. And that's the piece that's a little different. Your kid with confidence knows who they are, can accept their strengths, but also recognize their weaknesses. And they don't need you to give them the accolades for it. They are taking that with them the rest of their lives. So when you say, but I don't know who my kid is, that's okay. You can do the core asset survey uh, that's right in chapter one that will take you a little bit of time, but you can watch your kid or you can take a three by five card. And this week, you can walk around the the house without your kid knowing it and just start writing down, what is he like? What is his interest? What does he enjoy? You're going to discover sometimes that you'll be floored by some of the things that you may have overlooked that are just in the here and now. And um, just sitting down and asking your kid, what is it about that that really intrigues you? Yeah. And it leads to some really interesting conversations. My oldest is really passionate about chess and I find chess so boring, but we've had some really interesting conversations where, you know, me being a psychologist, I'll say to him, what is it about chess that is so interesting to you? And he'll give some really insightful answers about, you know, he can sort of zoom in to see the specific moves and zoom out to see the board. And he really likes being able to see something that his opponent doesn't see, sort of see behind what's going on or to see ahead. 
And it's, it's just kind of cool from a psychological perspective. And it helped me know him better, even though my mind doesn't work like that at all, but that there are some commonalities in what we might appreciate about the game. It's just that we go about those kinds of things very differently because we have very different brains. I love the fact that you said it wasn't you. That's the hardest part about parenting is discovering that the kid is into something that isn't what we did or wasn't on our agenda. And chess, you know, I've I've worked all over the world. And one of the most amazing things was um, in Armenia uh, when I went into into a school and they said, well, Dr. Borba, we've discovered one of the most interesting ways to teach character because we as a country want to make sure that our kids are strong, strong, you know, in their minds, but also strong in character. I said, what? He says, well, go on into that classroom. It was a chess club. And every single day, there's a full-time chess teacher. And what they've discovered when I walked in there, I don't speak Armenian, but I'm watching these third graders who are required to take chess. And I'm going, oh my gosh, this is absolutely brilliant. What they're doing is face-to-face with each other, They're sizing each other up. And what they're doing is perspective taking, empathy building. They're going, you can see the kid going, she doesn't have a clue where she's moving that piece. I got her. And it was just wonderful. And then they also have to encourage each other. Good job. Play by the rules. They're also stretching their mind and they're stretching their mind, you know, all that forward, fast forward thinking. But they were doing it to teach perspective taking and empathy. And they were brilliant. So there's little some things that flip to help our kids thrive that we overlook a power of just that chess set. Yeah. I mean, and that's where, you know, hobbies really do have this untapped power. So related to just getting excited about what our kids are excited about, I have this question about, you know, there's all these recommendations floating out in the ether about the right way to praise our kids in order to boost their self-confidence. So what are your tips in this arena? Like how do we give our kids praise in ways that aren't going to inflate them in, in unhelpful ways, but rather support the development of their self-confidence. Yeah. Well, it, and do know that kids do need attaboys. So that isn't what I'm saying is don't stop praising your kid because boy, they need our voice inside their head that lets them know. But there's some real interesting studies that came out of Ohio State on the right and the wrong way to do it. The first thing is please make sure it's earned. Don't praise them for the heck of it. Look real carefully and try to be specific with it. If you add the word because to your praise, it'll take it up five levels. That was really uh, a great move because. Or don't undervalue character traits. We praise the end product or what you get, but we forget to praise the that was being so kind because look at how the response of your friend. Oh, my gosh. Did you see the look in her eyes? Oh, my gosh. Keep doing that, sweetie pie. Earshot praise is incredible. That is when you praise your kid to, uh, you're doing it intentionally, but you're doing it sneaky. That's really cool. You praise your kid to grandma. Oh my gosh, you could, uh, you should see his artwork. You'll be so impressed. You can't believe what he's doing, but don't let your kid know that he's supposed to be listening to the praise. He eavesdrops on it without him knowing, and it quadruples the praise. It needs to be earned. It needs to be specific. It needs to be not all the time. But your goal is maybe to the point where your child begins to get it, or you can also go one step more and say, great job. Did you tell yourself inside your head you did a good job and what you value about what you just did? Wow, now you've gotten off of you having to give the gold stars, and he's doing it. And stop doing the trophies and the gold stars, especially when it comes to creativity. 
One of the things they discovered is that when kids were really artistic and they did a phenomenal artistic work, it was earned and deserved. They started praising them or they started giving them, you know, the gold stickers or here, wow, you get the trophy. The next time they did a project, their creativity went down Yes, because it wasn't as valuable to them. They felt like, oh, gee, now I got to be worried about somebody else's standards and not my own. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, a whole slew of research that suggests that external motivators reduce intrinsic motivation. And so you're you're suggesting to be real careful about that. And I I think that it's such an important recommendation that um, also brings to mind, you know, David Brooks' book, The Road to Character. He talks a lot about resume virtues versus eulogy virtues. And to me, I think what you're getting at is really reinforcing the eulogy virtues, that it's not about achievement, fame, status. It's really about reinforcing the core, these core characteristic traits that you're suggesting are the things that really elevate kids and help them to thrive. And that when we reinforce those things, instead of the outcome, that it's a motivation that keeps them going because of intrinsic motivation. Oh, I so agree with that. And that goes back to um, trait number six, which is perseverance. Singlest one on that one is don't emphasize the end product, says Carol Dweck. You start emphasizing how many did you get 100% A plus, what you actually do is squelch the kid's learning potential. But if you keep emphasizing instead the effort you're putting in, yesterday you were here, today you're here. Oh, I know it's hard, but keep stretching, sweetie pie. If you keep stretching that effort, what you actually do is increase that child's perseverance and what a difference that makes on a child. Because now again, remember thrivers, they have agency. They realize it's not a matter of my IQ or which class I'm in or which book I'm reading, but an effort on how much I put into the task and I can do it if I just keep working harder at it. So I'm so glad that you brought us to perseverance because that is one that I think many parents are really struggling with, that their kids don't seem to have that growth mindset, that ability to kind of stick with it. And again, what I love about your book is that you offer a lot of really on the ground techniques for what to do. So I'm going to give you a couple of sort of case examples. These are collected again from friends and and get you to sort of walk us through some of the things that we can try to do to handle this. And again, you know, go to the book for tons more suggestions because you give a lot of really great ones. So how about this one? So consider that your kid is melting down on the baseball field because he isn't skilled and is feeling embarrassed. The kid is 10 years old and crying. And the parent says, you know, I'm struggling because I could step in and coach and suggest, um, you know, how he could perform better, but that would be taking away his autonomy and independent learning. Or I could whisk him off the field and shield him from embarrassment, but that would be bubble wrapping. So what should a parent do? Number one is, yay, mom, don't whisk him off the field in bubble wrapping. That's actually more embarrassing to the child and doesn't help him at all. But what you could do, and again, this is what you could do because there's so many different scenarios and I wish I were there to watch the situation. But number one is we discovered that many of our kids don't know what to do when they fail. What do they do when they get really upset? But what you could do in the, not in the heat of the moment, but in the quiet moments of home, uh, example number one. Watch baseball together on a major league baseball game and watch somebody who strikes out and then point out what does he do? How does he handle the strikeout? Because people very often remember you more of how you respond and then practice a different response pattern. That'll help him and just handle the embarrassment on the field. 
first, if you anytime you see a child who is triggering a behavior or doing something and, and it's drawing attention to him, very often, in all fairness, he doesn't know a replacer. He doesn't know what else to do instead, and it is embarrassing. So you teach not in the heat of the moment, but in a quiet moment, and you rehearse it. You practice it over and over again. Now, mommy's going to pretend that she just struck out. Watch what mommy does. Number two, along the way, this is a many-fisted thing. Ask yourself, is this particular coach and this particular uh, where my child is appropriate at his level? Is it too far over his expectations compared to all the rest of the kids? Or if I saw, if I talk to the coach quietly, what would he suggest that we do to help him? Third is go back to the best thing I ever did in my whole life. Uh, when I practiced piano, I had the worst teacher in the entire world. And let truth be told, his name was Mr. White and he drove me crazy. Now, what Mr. White did as my piano teacher is if I made a mistake, even though I was almost a bar from the end, start all over again, Michelle, start all over again until you can get it 100% right. What happened was I got so stressed because all I did was think about the mistake that I was ready to blow each time. I mean, I, I hated piano. so. Bless Mrs. Thompson. She was my next teacher because Mrs. Thompson had a different level. She said, oh, Michelle, let's look at figuring out what that one little stumbler is. Instead of the whole thing, what's the one little thing you're doing wrong? And let's figure that out. Oh, it's because of where you're putting your finger on that black cord. Let's hit that bar over and over. We'd practice, practice, practice. Now start at the beginning. My stress went down and I was able to go through. So your third option, mom, is to figure out the one thing he does need to practice on if he really wants to improve. Is it batting? Maybe it's not batting, because he, but it's the one little stumbler. He's not holding the bat the right way. So find out what's really curtailing him and maybe practice that together. So there's three things. Now it's back to mom going, which is going to work for my child? Yeah, and being willing to experiment and fail yourself and say, you know, that didn't work. Can I try something else? What else can I focus on on trying as a parent? And and I love the idea of like really narrowing down. There may be like 10 different things that where you could start, but just pick one. Yeah. And try to see what you can do there and if if you don't get anywhere, you know, pivot to something else, which is really modeling for your kid how to handle things that don't go exactly right. Well, and and perseverance, that chapter 6 a big thing, you're right, is many of the kids right now are all hitting the COVID wall. Motivation has gone down. They are so exasperated by it all, and they're at the why bother level. But very often, it's because, remember the, the multiplier effect? If your self-control is also low, your focusing ability, your attention span is also low, your stress is high. So don't just aim for the perseverance. Maybe go down to that other trait and go, let's figure out maybe cut the practice time a little shorter or go into that stumbler a little more, figuring out that one little thing, and that'll help the perseverance improve as well. Yeah, so that brings me to my next question, which comes from a friend of mine who's a teacher in a really low-income area. And a lot of those kids wow. have been through trauma long before COVID, and the trauma has just exacerbated, like mushroomed out of control. And so her question is, how do you handle kids who have been through trauma? How do you support them in building resilience and building towards thriving, either as a result of the pandemic or other forms of trauma experience? So in a not only for the educators, but what advice do you have for the parents of kids who have been through trauma? 
Number one is trauma is a whole different entity. And the whole goal on that one is don't start with looking at the skills. Start looking at self at the base of the foundation. And there's there's really three things that we know about kids who have been through trauma of helping them overcome and or endure. Then they can. But number one, they need an extremely empathetic, caring person. That teacher needs to get into the shoes of the kid and go, what has happened to them? What have they been through? And during COVID, you may not know that at all. It's been a year of distancing and you don't know. It may be a one index card to each child. Tell me the one thing that's happened so I can help understand you. Or maybe it's an email exchange to each uh, parent. I haven't been there. I need to know how can I help your child Tell me what's happened. It could be a conference or it could be a phone call, but get into the shoes of that kid and that that home and you'll be far more empathetic because that's the key. Number two is we do know that that haven of that classroom needs to be safe. It needs to be trusting. It needs to be expectations at a level that start with the child, not where the rest of the classroom is. So go down to that child's level. Many kids are coming in and they have been through unbelievable stuff. Most of our kids have been inconvenienced. But there are some children who have been really through horrors, grief, just, and they're walking in and many of them are scared to death of even catching the COVID or grandma passed away. How come I'm not going to? You've got to really let them know you're in a safe environment here. I'm here for you. And it's going to be a couple of weeks. Third is you're going to slowly be able to teach them protective factors, but you may want to at this point also start with that, not only empathy, but also self-control. And that is figure out how long your that child can endure in that classroom or sit in that seat. What's his maximum level until he starts to break apart? Ideas you can do. Number one is it could be a quiet signal between the two of you. When the pen goes on his desk, it means I'm about ready to break. Because too many kids are at the breaking point and they're, they're, they're disheveled. It could be a silent code between you and the child. You can do this at home as well. When the doctor takes you to the ER, the first question is, how bad is the pain? A zero is you're about ready to go to sleep. You're at a zero. Seven is you're a volcano about ready to explode. That kid can give you a quiet signal. Here's where I am right now. I used to do a thermometer in my classroom that was a cardboard thermometer that was unbelievably ridiculously simple. And it was my spur of the moment trying to figure out where the kids were at. I put up a paper, uh, just a, a clothespin for each child with their name on it. I put my own, why not? And then I drew about five different kinds of emotions on cardboard, you know, like you're about ready to blow and zero is you're so you're so happy today. How are you doing? And then the kids would clip it to where the level was. It took them a long time to get permission to feel safe in order to do so. But the book says that one day I walked in and everybody was smelling around one kid. And I looked at what's going on and they said, Miss Borba, Aaron's having a really tough time today. Look at his thermometer up there. We're trying to make him feel good. So a final thing could be uh, what many schools are doing with SEL, teaching uh, what Oakland schools are doing, which is a, a slow, deep breath. Oh, I'm going to stop a minute because this was so mind boggling. I worked on army bases and Navy SEALs taught me this. And they said, it's the fastest way to chill out. The moment we feel ourselves getting stressed, we take a slow, deep breath from our abdomen. Like we're riding up an elevator. We're riding it up like we're blowing a flower. Then we hold it for a count of two. And then we slowly let it out like we're blowing out a candle. 
but the exhale is twice as long as the inhale. It's the fastest way to relax. I, I just did that. And I'm telling you, I'm so relaxed. I'm just ready to go to sleep. But I practice and practice. What Oakland schools are doing is every day, they've shaved off three minutes of class time. So the start of every day is every single kid is doing that because they realized not only did behavior improve, suspensions went down, attendance went up, but test scores went through the roof because kids felt relaxed and safe. I love all of those recommendations. So, you know, I think that there's a lot of different places that we could end, but we talk a lot about books and movies that you can watch or read with your kids. And you give lots of recommendations. You gave one in here already for inspiring books and movies for that, that sort of lend themselves to ideas for character strength growth. Um, so I'm just curious, what's, what's one of the favorite movies or books that you found inspiration in this past year that you'd recommend parents watch or read with their kids? Anything that gives kids hope. And number two is that resonates with the kid. So let me start with, because there's so many, I just asked a group of kids, what's the one book that you hope that teachers just keep always reading out loud? Middle school kids, they say the outsiders. And I go, you got to be kidding. That's 50 years old. They said, yeah, but it's still powerful. I said, why? Because it helps us learn what it feels like to be excluded. The hate you give high school kids. I said, really? That's so depressing. It took a week out of my life. I cried my way through it. It goes, yeah, but we're dealing with racism right now. And it's part of our history. We got to be able to understand it. And you got to help kids understand it. I'm going, oh my God, how glorious is that? I asked a high school teacher, you're going to love this. I'm going to play 20 questions. Ready? Okay. Here's my question to you. This is a gate teacher, extremely over the top, high achieving kids in sophomore high school. I asked the teacher, what's the one book that kids are asking you to read? You want to guess? This is going to blow you away. Uh, I don't know. Harry Potter. (laughs) You would have guessed Harry Potter. You ready? Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. I said, you're kidding. Sophomore high school. And I said, why? She says, I I asked the kids the same thing. They said, because we're having a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad year. And we got to keep remembering you can get through it. And Alexander keeps reminding us. It's finding the book that resonates with your kids. I mean, how about Dunkirk? To be able to say, look, they were up against horribleness. But you know what happened? At that moment of that moment, I'll get you know a crying jag. But what a great movie to show kids compassion. You see what happened? All they did was call out, we need help. And look at all those boats. They came in from everywhere to try to help and rescue. That's what people do. And that's what's happening right now. You're just hearing the bad stuff about the world. But let's start looking at the good stuff. Let's look at the back page of the newspaper. Let's cut out the good stuff about kids that are doing amazing things. Let's talk about the the first responders. Let's talk about people that will do their all that'll help just like a Dunkirk. I mean, that's a movie that just was like, oh my gosh. And when that captain said, that's home. Oh, (sighs) I went went home and had to get out leave in order to get through that one. But that's (laughs) what children said they need. They need uplifting stuff that gives them hope and optimism and books and movie films can do that. 
Yeah. And it's something so nice that you can do together with them. And I have to say yes. that after I read your book, I, I now have a very long list that I want to go through with my kids. So some of them I have read and watched, but there's so many more. And I, I just love the recommendations. I love so much of your work, Michelle. And cool. you have, I know you have lots of goodies like the core asset survey and descriptions of the essential character traits, among other materials on your website, um, michelleborba.com. And, and of course, you know, picking up your book. Oh, no, thank you. Um, sir, I do have a YouTube channel that I just opened up, but most of oh, those cool. are on my, my um, yeah, what I've been trying to do is also do like three-minute clips of simple little things you can do at home. I think above all else, we have got to get a mindset or maybe reset our parenting, that it's a different world. And we've got to get a different set of tools to help our kids be able to handle this very uncertain world. It doesn't mean you're going to stop helping them try to be successful in a classroom. I'm not going there. I'm just saying, let's make it a balance so it's not either or, it's both. These seven traits are going to help your kid be a peak performer, but they're also going to help your child be mentally healthier, to be able to be more resilient, to be able to bounce back and find joy in their life and in the world. And that's, I think, what we're really looking for in our kids when they finally leave us. It goes by real fast, you know. So recognize that we've got to really rethink. Yeah, mom, watch out. It does, but we can do this. Thank you so much, Michelle. I appreciate your time. Oh, thank you. I just love talking to you. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, our dissemination coordinator, Katie Rothfelder, and our editorial coordinator, Melissa Miller. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our webpage, offtheclockpsych.com.